Good morning, everyone. How are we doing today? Yay. Hey, I got a whole bunch of stuff for the senior ministry. I was going to call it senior ministry moment, and then somebody said, well, just call it senior moment, you know, and get, you know, get over it, you know. But uh, so anyways, we were discussing it's age before beauty, so, right? <laughs> so anyways, um, we got a whole bunch of stuff coming up, though. April 20th, which is this Thursday, uh, we're going to be carpooling out to the Aaron's Museum and tour the uh, the biathlon center out there also. I don't know how many people are aware, but uh, because there was a couple of biathletes from Wisconsin in last year's Olympics, uh, Aaron's has built a training ground out there that's specifically the biathlon biathletes, but uh, also open to the public. And then there's the museum out there and stuff like that. So... Um, Thursday looks weather looks really bad, so if you're planning on going out and uh, laying on the beach and sun tanning, ain't gonna happen. So you're more than welcome to join us. So uh, then the 29th, which is a Saturday, we've been trying to gather names of people that are living independently but need help with yard work. If you know of anybody, I only got two names so far of people that have signed up. If you know of anybody that uh, would like somebody to just come and rake their yard, stuff like that, maybe plant some flowers, let me know. If you're interested in helping rake yards and planting, let me know also. So it's just that we're trying to uh, serve our people at home a little bit better and stuff that way. So uh, then May 2nd is and Sherry, Sherry's been working really hard on this. We're going to be delivering our, our May baskets to what we consider the homebound, people that are at, at home can't get out. Uh, and they're going to be ready after, after Bible study on May 2nd to pick up. So I think we got like 70 on the list, something like that, this year that will be going out. So it's going to be a nice plant along with some cookies, candy, and stuff like that. It's just, it's just another way of reaching out to... Uh, to, to our homebound. Um, let me see, May 18th uh, is going to be our last senior event that we're going to be breaking for the summer. We're going to be going out to the Farm Discovery Center out in Manitowoc. I don't know how many people have ever been there. We went last year at the grandkids. It was a ball. I'm not kidding you. I learned, I come from a farming background, and I could not believe how technology has impacted our farming. So it's really great to go see. There's a lot of interactive stuff to look at out there. Uh, they got a really good cafe that is going to provide, you know, farm-to-table food. So there will be the chance to eat out there and everything. So that's going to be posted today. I'll, be, I'll get the postings up on the bulletin boards for that. May 18th. And then, last and final, May 19th is going to be our event planning day. That is when anybody can come in. We gather that we're going to be down in the hall down here. I believe it starts at 9 o'clock. 9 or 10? Uh, 10 to noon. Uh, and what we do is it's a process that we go through. Everybody brings their ideas in. We list them out. We take the ones that rise to the top. Uh, and then we select from there for next year's events that we're going to be doing. So it's really an important time. We want input from everybody, uh, you know, of what what interests you. And we'll work through the process and we'll get it onto the schedule and stuff like that. So um, that's all I have. If there's any questions or something, you can get a hold of me through the church. I'm going to be up for a while. I'm uh, getting ready to uh, do the homebound mailing and stuff like that. So thank you very much. Everybody have a great day and a great study. Thank you. Thanks, Dennis. Okay, here comes beauty. <laughs> <laughs> Need to get your eyes checked. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Good to be with you again so we can dig into the Word of God together. Uh, you see we have a couple extra rows of tables kind of flowing here, right? Uh, we had 155 sign up for our Saturday seminar already. Woo! Isn't that nice? Plus, and that doesn't include all the online people. I think there's maybe another 50 or so that will be watching online. So uh, we're all ready for our Saturday seminar. I'm excited about that. I really, really am. Uh, maybe you heard me say the other day, I just was looking at the Institute of Mental Health and coming out of COVID, uh, their estimate is that one out of five Americans 
is dealing with some sort of mental health issue. One out of five, you know, and just struggling with finding joy and happiness and contentment and peace in life. And you all know that's not what God wants for us. God has joy for us and peace. And so uh, there's a way we can find that. And that's what we'll discover together on Saturday. So I can't wait. Uh, you also have your little bright pink, you can't miss it, congregational forum uh, flyer. Uh, you know there's some exciting things coming up here in uh, for our ministry at Faith uh, in the days ahead. And so our, our annual congregational meeting is in May, and we want to give some uh, input and hear your thoughts about uh, where we want to go together as a congregation. And so if you come to that, you'll get to share uh, your, your heart, and you'll get to hear where uh, some things are going and uh, get to share your feedback. Uh, we'll talk about, you know, we're starting our 75th year of ministry, our anniversary. Our 75th anniversary is next February. So we'll have a whole year of celebrating and events to rejoice in 75 years of blessings. Uh, but that we'll also then uh, be able to talk about a capital campaign that we want to run that will get us ready for the next 75 years. What do we have to do to prepare ourselves to bring the gospel out to the next generations and to our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids, right? So we'll talk about that capital campaign and all the possibilities for that. So just a lot of things that are coming up about what's going on with our family ministry. Uh, we'll share some information about how we're replacing Miss Becca. We'll talk about, you know, just some of the changes that are going on with our staffing. And so just really a time to catch up on what's going on at church and ministry and sort of dream and pray about the future. So we'd love to have your heart be a part of that in any one of those three uh, opportunities. Also, if I could, the one on Saturday um, includes an open house at 6 o'clock. If you haven't had a chance to walk around our Celebration Ministry site to see uh, where the Celebration Lutheran School is, to see where our Celebration Child Care is, if you haven't seen how... Uh, how they use every inch of space in that building <laughs> and actually fight over each inch of space in that building, you know, you should just come by and take a look. Uh, I'm, I'm, I think sometimes that those of us who are in faith most of the time don't really see all the amazing things God's doing at our celebration site with our, our school and child care over there. So if you want to uh, come to that meeting on Saturday night, you can plug in for the open house at 6, and the meeting will start right after at 6.30. So... You can learn a little bit more about it all that way. All right, so that's what your little pink flyer is all about. Uh, I hope you picked up your study. I was giving Pastor Aaron a hard time because he's the guy that put the schedule together, how we would break up the Gospel of Mark. And I'm like, what in the world? How are we supposed to do the anointing of Jesus and the Last Supper in one session? So he said, you can just keep them for a couple hours because there's no worship afterwards or anything. So I hope you're settled in and comfortable. Um, so anyway, we're going to talk about this amazing event um, right the two days, three days before Jesus was crucified uh, when a woman shows up and in Jesus' own words, he says this. He says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. And so we'll get to talk about the beautiful thing that this wonderful woman did for Jesus before uh, his suffering and death. And then we'll also talk about the Last Supper throw that in for for grins right so let's have a word of prayer that god will guide us and lead us and that all things we do are according to him pleasing to him gracious lord heavenly father god thank you for this time to be in your word thank you for the friendships that we share thank you for the opportunity to be together today and most of all thank you for your word um this great word that when we open the pages of scripture we know we're not just reading history but we know god that you're speaking through the words on a page with your voice right into our ear, right into our brain, right into our hearts. It's it's your word, God. You're going to lead and guide and teach us and, and give us what we need for life today. So thank you for that precious word. Pray that as we study it, that you would open our hearts, that we might see how we too can make a beautiful thing, an offering to you of our lives and be used by you to make a difference in the kingdom. So bless us as we talk about that and then see how you've um, sort of fed us to do that very thing in the gift of the Lord's Supper. So bless us, be with us now as we study, learn, and grow in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, my friends, so you know what I always like to do? I like to read the word first, and then I like to get our scalpel out and dig into it one little verse at a time. So Mark chapter 14 is where you want to be today. Open your Bibles there, please. 
For those of you who have been with us for a while in the study of Mark, you know that we are now in that last week of Jesus' life, uh, that week we call Holy Week. You know, they didn't call it that yet. But Mark chapter 14 begins on Wednesday of Holy Week. So you remember it was the Sunday before that Jesus entered on Palm Sunday. Uh, you know, it was the Monday after where he went and had his exchange with the religious leaders when he overturned the tables in the temple. Uh, and then a day Tuesday was that great teaching day. There's just so much that Jesus did in the city that day. He was out and about teaching. And, and, um, and then comes Wednesday, and that's where we find ourselves here on Mark chapter 14. So I'll read verses 1 through 26 for you. Now the Passover of the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, <laughs> or the people may riot. You wouldn't want to ruin a good feast with murdering the Son of God, would you? While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the house of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will have with you always, and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I, it is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the gospel of our Lord. All right, you ready to dig in? Let's start with the anointing, uh, that beautiful act of that woman. A study of Mark cannot overlook this really touching incident in Bethany. 
For Jesus called it a beautiful thing and said that wherever the gospel would be proclaimed throughout the world, people would remember and tell about this woman's act of love. And guess what we're doing right now? We're doing exactly what Jesus said would happen. Shock, <laughs> not, right? We're still talking about this beautiful act. Uh, there are moments like, um, you know, the old phrase, if you could only be a fly in the wall. You know, there are moments that don't you wish you could see or be a part of. You know, for me, the upper room moment would be something I, I would love to have experienced and seen. Uh, I would love to been there when Lazarus came walking out of the tomb, right? <laughs> with all the grave clothes wrapped around him and the, all the religious leaders with their jaws hanging down by their, you know, by their feet. Would you love to have been a part of that? I mean, but here's another one for me, right? To have been there when this woman anointed Jesus' head with that expensive perfume. Just that moment and, and how Jesus certainly appreciated that so much that he called it this beautiful thing. And that's, this is the, what a moment. We're going to talk about, oh, i got to stop. Read on. Bethany now, where this all happens, right, is a suburb of Jerusalem. It's just two miles away beyond the Mount of Olives. We know a lot about Bethany from the scriptures, don't we? It was the home of his friends, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Bethany was the place where not many weeks before he had called Lazarus, who had been dead four days from his tomb. And that miracle had made its impression on everyone, you think? Also on the Jews, the religious leaders, who set themselves more firmly to get rid of Jesus. This is that, that whole story of Lazarus and its effect on people is just a study of human nature. Some people saw that and they go, holy smokes, <laughs> he is the son of God. Other people saw that same event and said, holy smokes, we got to get rid of this guy. We got to kill him. You know, it's just funny how we can see and hear what we want to see and hear, isn't it? So anyway, after that, the, the pressure got notched up for Jesus. So on this occasion now, this is a couple weeks after the raising of Lazarus. Jesus is at the home of Simon the leper. What do you know about Simon the leper? Right? Evidently, he was a well-known figure who had been healed by Jesus. So let's stop there. Why do we think that Simon the leper was probably healed by Jesus? All right, because if he had leprosy, where would he not be? In the house with all those people having dinner together. Because what happened to lepers? They were sent outside of the city to the, the outskirts, the leper colonies or whatever. They were outcasts. They weren't allowed to be with people, right? So we, he must have been healed. So uh, Simon the leper. Who was Simon the leper? You know, this is the only time we hear about him in the whole Bible. There's not another time where we know anything about him except he's called Simon the leper. There's been a whole bunch of speculation about who he was. Some people actually think it was Lazarus himself. That he, uh, his name was uh, like Simon Lazarus or Li Lazarus Simon. That he was the one. Because in John, when the story is told of this event in the Gospel of John, they're in Lazarus's house. All right, but here it says we're at the house of Simon the leper. So see, how do you reconcile these two things unless they're one and the same person? Or... Others have said it's two separate events that just, you know, who knows. Point is, maybe, maybe Lazarus. Some people have said it was Lazarus's father. That Simon the leper was Mary, Martha, and Lazarus's dad. And that's the house that we were at because that would make sense. Because that would also be Lazarus's home if it was his father's home. You get that? See, so that makes some sense, right? Other people said, it's just a dude that Jesus healed who had leprosy. And now they call him Simon the leper. <laughs> you know, it's, and he just lives in Bethany. Point is, we don't really know a lot about him, except there was some special friendship that he had with Jesus. Because this was Jesus' inner circle of friends here in Bethany, wasn't it? Mary, Martha, Lazarus, his disciples, and Simon the leper. Wow. I was saying earlier when we were talking up front, I want to know the rest of the story. If only Paul Harvey was here to tell us, you know, uh, what, don't you want to know, you know, what happened to him? Well, maybe he was the one of the ten that was healed of leprosy. 
right? Who came back and thanked God. And Jesus said, where are the other nine? Wouldn't that be cool if that was the one? So maybe that's the story he's got to tell. Maybe he was just another. You know, Jesus did a whole lot more miracles that are not recorded in the Gospels. John himself said that, right? There's many other miracles. So who knows how many lepers he healed? Not just the ones we know in the Bible. I'm sure there were others, other great things that Jesus did. Um, and each one of them had a story to tell, didn't they? Ooh, I get excited about that stuff. Because there's only so many pages, right? There's only so much you can do and say, you know. There, and in those days, it's everything had to be written and hand copied. So you know, you were careful about what you said. You, you left out the details. You, yeah. <laughs> so we don't know all the stories. Uh, but what did John say? But these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Does that sound familiar to anybody? That was our gospel lesson from this last weekend, right? So anyway, we don't know. So I'm reading out of my paragraph. Matthew and Mark, who also tell this story, simply say that a woman came to him. John later went into more detail in his gospel about this story, explaining that Martha was helping to serve the dinner, Lazarus was an invited guest, and that it was Mary who anointed Jesus' head with a fragrant oil of nard. So we don't know in who the woman is. It just says a woman. But if the event in John is the same as the event in Mark, then the person who did this thing was Mary, sister of Martha and Lazarus, right, who loved and followed Jesus. All right, so anyway, this uh, anointing with this fragrant oil of nard. Kings were anointed in this way. So don't lose that. right? That's, that's what kings, you know, kings were anointed with this special oil or... Uh, the special perfumes like that. So uh, Mary was declaring this in uh, this event, her faith that Jesus was the promised Messiah King and was showing that she had been listening more receptively than others to his predictions about his death and resurrection. I'm going to want to dig into that with you in a little bit, right? What was Mary thinking when she did this? Ooh, that'll be a fun one. Next paragraph. The reaction of the disciples, however wasn't exactly the same as Mary's reaction, was it? It says they, were, they had this sense of righteous indignation. Uh, I should have probably said self-righteous indignation there. <laughs> they called Mary's use of the expensive perfume a waste. That was their exact words, a waste. And suggested that it could have been sold at a high price, a year's wages for a day laborer, and the money given to the poor. Now, don't we just need to stop again? And like, who said that it was a waste? The disciples. The 12 disciples, who at this point in time had been with Jesus for three years. These are the same guys that saw him calm the storm with a word. These are the same guys that saw him walk on the water. These are the same guys that saw him raise Lazarus, raise Jairus' daughter, right? These are the same guys that saw him cast out demons, Right? These are the same guys. And, and they see this beautiful thing, and they call it a waste. It's just mind-boggling to me. Again, as I'm writing this, uh, this appears to be sort of a noble statement. Oh, it could have been given to the poor. Until you realize that in John's gospel, it was Judas Iscariot who was the instigator of this attitude, the betrayer. And John even says in his gospel from John 12, that the reason that Judas did this is he was the treasurer of the group and kept the money purse. And from time to time, John says, would help himself to what was in the purse. So, of course, he's going to say, what if my purse had a whole year's wages in it? Yeah. <laughs> you see, so it's not as noble as you might think. Oh, the money could be given to the poor. Yeah. <laughs> my poor pockets. You see? So it's Jesus' response to the reaction, really, that is the main thrust of this whole incident. The communicator's commentary, you know I use this one a lot, right? It suggests Jesus' response was threefold. First is the word which liberated the woman. He said, why are you bothering this woman? So there's that. Second, there's the word that placed service in relation to worship. He says, the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. 
And the third word then is the good news to the whole world. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, he said, uh, this story will be told in honor of her. So these are the sort of three things we're going to want to look at together for the rest of this little section of our study. Sound good? All right, so number one, how did Jesus interpret the woman's act of love? Don't you love it? They're all over her. And he says in verse eight or verse six, leave her alone. In other words, stop bugging her. She's doing a good thing. Why are you bothering her? He said, she has done a beautiful thing to me. So how did Jesus interpret her, her, her act of love? As a way of preparing, right? He goes on later to say that, doesn't he? Um, uh, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Isn't it interesting how Jesus interpreted this? That she was doing this to prepare his body for burial. Now, in those days, when folks were buried, they weren't, you know, like embalmed like we were. So what did you do to bury someone? You, you, you rubbed, anointed them with oil and perfume. And then you wrapped them up in the bandages and placed them in the tomb, right? So see, this, Jesus saw this perfume as a, a preparation for his burial. So you see, this is what got my brain just going, right? <laughs> what did Mary understand? This is the great question, isn't it? Did she know that Jesus was going to die in just a couple of days? And that she was using this perfume as a way to anoint him, to prepare him for his burial? Right? Did she know? Or was this just Jesus so focused on what was to come that he saw what she was doing as a foretelling of what would happen to him in a few days? That's the million-dollar question. That's if you read any commentaries on this section of, of the, the Bible, you'll hear people lining up on either side of the aisle on that one, right? So let's just explore for a second. Might, have, might, might Mary have known? She sure could have. I mean, look at what she had just experienced and seen just this week, the triumphal entry. And then in the teaching day, there's this really interesting little conversation Jesus has with the Pharisees about how he is the Messiah who is the father of David. <laughs> anyway, you know, there's this so, it is so, and how many times did he already say to them, listen, everybody, we're going to go to Jerusalem. And when we go, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be beat, spit on, mocked, crucified, and die. But don't worry, three days later, I'm going to rise again. They heard this three times. So is it possible that Mary understood? I always kind of like to say yes, because it makes sense that a woman would get it and all the men did it. <laughs> isn't, isn't that the fact, right? right? The women were listening. Mary was listening. Mary was just not having to understand, not having to explain, not having to argue. Mary just listened, and she anointed Jesus, did this beautiful thing for Jesus. Arlo, I saw you had a hand before. Did we? We got it? So I don't know. Um, maybe it was Jesus putting more into it, pointing toward what was coming, but I, don't, I like to think that Mary got it. Don't you? I do, too. I, I just think. All right, so uh, number two, what alabaster jars of ointment may we bring today that prepare for Jesus' burial? Jesus, you know, said uh, that she did this beautiful thing. Can we do beautiful things for Jesus still? So like what? Witnessing, sharing. Remember, Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these, you what? Do for me. So if you reach out and help someone, if you reach out and serve someone, if you reach out and love someone, if you give of your, uh, of your money to help someone who is in need, guess what you're doing? You're anointing Jesus' head. Do you ever think of that? You're doing a beautiful thing for Jesus because whatever you do to the least of these, you do unto Jesus. That's one way. Here's another way. By uh, anything you do to, to push the gospel, into the world, you know, helping to build a church, helping to support a school, helping to uh, 
uh, be a part of a mission, bringing flowers on May Day out to our homebound. These sort of things really are anointing of Jesus. And you may not hear him say this, but when you do these things, I think Jesus is saying, they just did a beautiful thing for me. Or what you will hear is this, well done, good and faithful servant. See, we don't think that all the time, do we? But we can do a beautiful thing for Jesus, not to get him to love us, not so that we can earn his favor or grace or forgiveness, but we just do it because, wow, we love him. And nothing would make us feel better than to be able to do something for the one who did so much for us. Amen? Why do we serve? Why do we love? Why do we care? Because we can give back to Jesus that way, some small way. So just, do you see where I'm going with that? Just, I'm kind of tearing up up here. Because when we do these things, we're doing a beautiful thing to Jesus. Isn't that cool? All right. Um, paragraph. Jesus' words about our always having the poor with us certainly do not excuse us from our responsibility to be God's way of helping to provide for them. Right? People could look at this where Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. People could use those words wrongly to say, see, I don't have to care about the poor. I'm just going to care about Jesus. I'm just going to care about the church. I'm just going to care about the believers. You can't do that, can you? Again, my interpreter's Bible said, this incident cannot be twisted into a justification for selfishness. There are few blasphemies worse than that which makes Jesus, through these words, an apostle of selfish indifference to the poor. Isn't that a good sentence, a good statement? So we need to remember other words of Jesus, too. His saying that he meets us in the least of his brothers and sisters. When we feed the hungry, provide clean water to the thirsty, clothe the naked, help the sick and the imprisoned. Right? We need to do that as well, don't we? At the same time, the interpreter's Bible says, the poor are more than just mouths to be fed. The poor have other deeper needs which, they, which money cannot meet. So, again, I think these days we love to throw money at institutions. And that's good, but that's not enough, is it? Because as we just said, they're more than moms to be fed. They need to be loved. They need to be cared for. They need to hear the good news. We're called to be a part of all of that, not just giving of dollars, but giving of ourselves to help feed and care for those who are hurting. So my third question then, how may we work at achieving this balance? Right? How do we work in the, between the investment in beautiful things that proclaim Christ's death for us and offer bread for the soul and our active support of social ministries? How do we find that balance? Don't end up on either extreme is my answer. <laughs> Don't just do one or the other, but find your balance in the middle somewhere. Right? We're called to do all those things, to give to the church, but also support charities and to care for the poor and needy and, the, and those who have uh, needs in our communities, right? Called to do both. So uh, the interpreter's Bible ends its commentary on the disciples, why this waste, by saying there are squanderings far worse than the waste of money. I, I like that sentence. So what did that sentence say about our priorities and our Christian stewardship of life? Right? It's not just about money. There are other ways we can squander our gifts, too, by not loving, by not caring, by not supporting, by not volunteering. All of those things are a part of what we've been called to do. All right, so paragraph. Uh, Jesus called Mary's act of devotion a beautiful thing. The Greek word for beautiful has an aesthetic as well as an ethical meaning which is why it is so absolutely striking the way Mark does this. He followed this story with immediately the account of Judas Iscariot arranging his bargain with the chief priest to hand Jesus over for 30 silver, uh, silver coins, the price of a slave. I mean, when I was reading that, were you just kind of like, wait a minute, we missed something in the middle there. Like this beautiful story uh, it ends with verse 9. Whatever has, she has done will be told in memory of her. And what happens next? <laughs> it is just so contradictory. 
the very next verse 10. Then Judas of Iscariot went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. You're like, what? How did he miss this? How is it possible that he could just move from this beautiful thing to the most ugly thing? Do you see what I'm saying? How could it flip that much? How could one who was there to see that then just so not see that? You know what I mean? How is that possible? He had his mind made up already. Yep. So here's the lesson, right? The lesson for us, you know, once you get your mind made up on something, that's dangerous. <laughs> because you'll see everything through that point of view. When we're reading and studying scriptures, we need to be really careful that we come at the word with an open mind, not a closed mind, right? We need to make sure that we listen to the word with our ears open to what God has for us, not for what our itching ears want to hear. Do you know the difference between this? Right? I wish the Bible said a lot of stuff that it doesn't. I also wish the Bible didn't say a lot of stuff that it does. Do you know what I mean? But thats I don't get to pick and choose that. This is God's word, not my word. He's the one that set it out there. So, see, this is an important lesson. When you get so set in your ways... You can even see a beautiful thing like Mary anointing Jesus for his burial as an awful, ugly thing and use it to betray Jesus. If that's not just a lesson for you and me, if that's just not like a slap in the face to wake up, you know, and understand who you are and what you're really doing to listen and follow Jesus or not, I don't know anything better. Would you agree? How fast the worm changes here from verse 8 or from verse 9 to verse 10, how the worm turns. And of course, they were delighted, it says, for an opportunity to, to seize Jesus. All right, thoughts about the anointing before we move on to this next section about the Lord's Supper? Please. So you're saying you like that we open ourselves up to both ends of it. Yeah. So what informs who's right or wrong? How do you know which denomination? We all, different denominations don't teach the same thing, right? So that means we all can't be right, correct? That means some of us are wrong, correct? So how do you know who's right or wrong? What's the determining factor? Who can yell the loudest? Who's the biggest? Yeah, you know what it is. It's the Word of God. This is what Lutheran is all about. Remember when Luther was asked to take his books and throw them in the fire to recant his teachings because they were accusing him of heresy? Right? Remember what he said? He said, I'll be the first one to take these books and throw them into the fire. If you can prove to me, according to the clear word of, te uh, the clear word of Scripture, not the word of a pope or a council or a church decision, but on the word of God. If you can use the word of God, I will be the first to throw my books into the fire. And then his famous words, here I stand, I can do no other. And what was he standing on? The word of God, right? See, so this is what it's supposed to be always. The word is what tells us what's right or wrong. Not popes, councils, uh public opinion, you know, but the Word of God. That needs to be our truth, our standard. Arlo? So let's talk about That's a really good point. If you couldn't hear, he said, we, we all have the same Word of God, right? So that's not the issue. We all have the same Word of God, but it's how you interpret that Word, right? So does that mean 
that because the word is interpreted differently by different churches, different denominations, does that mean the word is not clear? Does that mean the Bible is, um, it's impossible to know truth because it is so nebulous and unclear? No. If there's, dis if there's, if there's a discussion, a debate about something, whether it's right or wrong, whose fault is that? It's not the word's fault, right? It's our fault. It's our responsibility to do what you are doing right now, which is study the Word of God. Learn the Word of God. Read, mark, and inwardly digest the Word of God so that you can determine truth, you know, based on the Word and interpret it correctly, right? See, uh, I don't want to slam another denomination, but more and more denominations are sliding away from the Word of God as the inspired, inerrant, infallible word. And as soon as you do that, you set yourself up for all kinds of error in, in your beliefs, in your beliefs, right? So we need to get to the heart of the word, let understand the word, interpret the word correctly, and let it be the truth that it really is. Not easy, is it? It's not easy, but yet it's still, it's our responsibility, but is it not also our joy? Don't you love just learning and growing in the Word of God? Don't you love when God just turns these light bulbs on and you go, Whoa, that was really cool, God. Thank you for that. <laughs> that, that really helped. That's really what I need. All of a sudden, something makes sense and you go, Whoa, thank you for that. Right? That's, that's the joy, too. So it's hard work studying the Word of God and digging into it. But it's also, I don't know of anything more fulfilling or, or, or gratifying certainly than that. Hard work, but worth every minute. Amen? Go ahead. He could not see the beautiful act. He saw it as an ugly act. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's Holy Spirit. Yep. One of the things that's happening, and I think it's PL here. Mm -hmm. um, I know two women pastors, and they are letting the outside secular world influence their preaching. I mean, from the way they look at all of this human sexuality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. doesn't yeah so if you couldn't hear what she is saying it's it's um you there are denominations that are just pulling away from the word and they're being influenced by the social um, media social uh, conventions of the day uh, the word on the street what people feel you know uh, and that, that they think they want to hear uh, and so would you agree that's happening sure but guess what that's not new. Sometimes we think like, oh my gosh, this, <laughs> the sky is falling. You know, but guess what? This has been happening since the beginning, right? This has been happening in certainly in the Old Testament times. You know, this whole word I said earlier that there, the, Isaiah said there will be preachers who say what their itching ears want to hear. That's, that's thousands of years old that's been going on. And guess what? The Word of God still stands. Truth is still truth. You know, uh, the, the gates of hell will not stand against the Word of God and the church that preaches it correctly. So take heart is what I'm trying to say. And you know, it's kind of like uh, how blessed I am feeling that the Holy Spirit says to me, see, you are not getting the true Word of God. And you have to and moved you to a place where you're spiritually fed. And I guess I didn't see 
I hit that wall and I just couldn't stay there. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, I'm, I'm glad the Holy Spirit was moving. Yep. Yep. For sure. pastors <laughs> maybe you know i keep praying uh you know how in if you re, if you're a studier of history what you see is the pendulum swings you look at history and you see this happens all the time you know that gets to a place where there's crazy immorality and it just gets way out of hand and then the pendulum swings back and i just keep thinking i don't know how much further the pendulum can swing before we have a turn and come back. I'm encouraged by some of the things I see happening in our community. You know, I'm starting to see more and more people stand up to the immorality and the false teachings in our world and say, this is not okay. We're finally starting to come out of our, our hiding a little bit and stand up for what we know is right. I'm also starting to see people coming back to church. You know, uh, this Easter, for example, at Faith, uh, we had 1,800 people in person and 600 people online that joined us on Easter Sunday. Wow. That's like 2,500 people, you know, that's good news, you know? And so, and that's the record since COVID for us. We're, we're starting to see the pendulum swing back, people coming back and, and plugging in again. So I don't know, I'm hopeful that the pendulum has gone as far as it's going to go, but we'll see. Both of those statements are correct. Right. People that are, quote, born that way. God doesn't make any mistakes, that you are correct. But everybody's born in sin. Every single person is born sinful. Did God do that? It's not God's fault. I mean, everybody's born sinful. We're broken. That's just this natural world, that God, we're born broken. But God fixed it in Jesus. So you can't say that's a reason to do whatever you want because God doesn't make mistakes just doesn't work that way. Everybody's a mistake, sinful. Well, with all the stuff that's going on and all the things that are acceptable, mm -hmm. and all I can say about an ELCA meeting is being taught. They, you know, it's, they've got a whole lot of reasons why they really believe that they're right. But, but not biblical reasons. See, you can, pull, you can pull a verse or two out of the Bible and say whatever you want. But a real scholar, a believer in the Bible, sees the Bible as a whole. And there's not a single argument for any of the sinful stuff we see today that you can approves of or agrees with. For every argument they have, I have 40 verses of Scripture that contradicts it. You know, you have to look at the Bible as a whole, not as a verse at a time. And you have to study it so you know. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. God's got this. Good. All right. So let's move on, shall we? Good stuff. We need to have another. We haven't. I did one of these a couple years ago. I called it Hot Buttons. We did a Saturday seminar. We just talked about the big controversial hot buttons. And we just got all of the. We listed about 13 questions that people would say to support some of this stuff. And we looked at what the scripture really says about it. We should. We should tell yeah, now there's 20. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to the Jesus then, the, the Last Supper, the Passover. Bottom of your page. It was Thursday, the 14th of Nisan. It was time to eat the Passover supper. And the disciples reminded Jesus, and according to Luke's gospel, Peter and John were sent to make the necessary arrangements for the group. 
All that was needed to gain access to a large furnished upper room was to tell the owner, the teacher says. <laughs> my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. And boom, he had the house prepared and ready. So again, obviously, Jesus had some connection with this person, right? There's another, I want to know the rest of the stories, right? Whose house was it uh, in the upper room? Uh, we don't know that one. Uh, friend of Simon the leper, probably. <laughs> so the Passover supper was an annual commemoration of the Lord's freeing Israel from slavery in Egypt. At that time, the people of Israel had commanded, uh, been commanded to roast a lamb, eat it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread, they were to eat it standing with cloaks on, sandals on their feet, and staffs in their hands, ready to travel. So, five, what was the key action in this whole story of the Passover that caused the Lord's angel of death, who killed the firstborn in every home, to pass over the homes of the Israelites? What was it that made the angel of death pass over? The blood of the lamb, right? Uh, it wasn't... It wasn't their nationality. It wasn't that they were the chosen ones. It wasn't that they sinned less than other people, right? What was it that made it was the blood of an innocent, perfect lamb that had been slaughtered that was put on the doorposts. And then it's interesting. God said to Moses, uh, when I see the blood, I will pass over your house. All right? So, it doesn't take a real genius to figure this one out, does it? What was the Passover pointing to? Yeah, you see, you can't miss this. This is, this is just this, this um, God had a plan. Already thousands of years before Jesus showed up. And this plan was that the Son of God would come and give his life. The innocent one would allow himself to be slaughtered so that his blood could be placed upon us so that when the angel of death saw us, he would pass over us. So every year when they celebrated Passover, why in the world did God command them to celebrate Passover every single year? Why was that so important? It was a pointing forward to, wasn't it? It wasn't just a remembering back, but it was also a pointing forward to the one time when Jesus would do what we're talking about here. Though every, this is my contention, that every single Passover celebration in the Old Testament was pointing toward this one Passover. When Jesus would do what God's people had done for hundreds of years, and he would take the bread and do something different. Instead of talking about the unleavened bread that the people ate in haste so that they could leave Egypt and tell the whole story of the Passover, Jesus takes the bread, and what does he say? Take and eat, and then he just says these weird words. This is my body. And I always have this impression that when Jesus said that, the disciples at the table are like, he just messed up the Passover, man. Did you hear that? Did, did he forget the words? He just, doesn't he know this is supposed to work? Right? <laughs> you know, they're like, what is he doing? That's not the way this goes. They had heard it. They had memorized it. They knew how this was supposed to work. And Jesus changes it. Well, I don't like the word change. Jesus fulfills it. Right? He takes what they had done that was pointing to something. In other words, it was empty. They took, he took what they had been doing that wasn't full, it wasn't complete, it wasn't able to deliver, and he made it full. You know, he said, now the Passover lamb has come. And now the bread that you'll eat is not a pointing back but it's a pointing to what I have done for you, right? It's the fulfillment that happened at that meal. And then he takes the cup. A lot of scholars love to talk about the cup that Jesus took at the Passover meal. If you've ever been to a Seder, you know that at the Seder meal, they set a special place for Elijah. 
It's a place setting. There's a chair that's left open. There's plates and silverware, and, and a cup of wine is placed at that, that setting. And there's a certain time in the Passover where they take Elijah's cup, and they say, because they all knew Elijah would be the forerunner for the Messiah, and they say, come Messiah and drink from your cup. See, even the Old Testament Seder pointed to the time when Messiah would come and fulfill that. And so a lot of scholars believe that when Jesus gave the cup, that he grabbed Elijah's cup. The cup that was reserved for the time Elijah would come and usher in the Messianic kingdom. Jesus takes Elijah's cup, which nobody ever drank from, because it was always they were waiting for Messiah to come. And he picks up Elijah's cup and says, take and drink. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you. Not the old covenant, not the old Passover, the new covenant, which is given for you for the forgiveness of sins. And again, I could just hear the disciple, dude, he just picked up the wrong cup. <laughs> That's Elijah's cup, man. You're not supposed to drink from that cup. Did Jesus forget the words or what? What do you think they did? They took it, they ate, and they drank, and they tried to make sense of it. Not until Passover. I mean, Pentecost. Once the Holy Spirit comes and reveals truth to them, then St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 11, you know, the body we eat is not the one loaf that we share, is not the wine we drink, the blood of Christ given for the forgiveness of sin. Then they got it. But at that moment, can you imagine their confusion? But anyway, my point in this is, do you just see the beauty of this night? Do you see the beauty of the Last Supper? That is it a coincidence that the Last Supper happened during Passover? Oh, what a happy coincidence. Of course not. That is not coincidence. That was God's plan from the very beginning, that this is the way it would work. And this great fulfillment of that for them happens at that moment. It changes it from that time on. So cool, isn't it? So amazing. Uh, all right. This night, by the way, is so important. The upper room is so important that when John tells the story, he takes five chapters of his gospel to tell about that one night in the upper room. Did you know that? Five chapters in the gospel of John are all about this one night in the upper room. Yeah. Uh, let's look at, you want to know, John maybe 14, 15. That's where it starts. So John 12 is when he's anointed at Bethany. John 13, he's in the upper room. Right? So it starts at John 13 and goes all the way through John 18. So a powerful night, a powerful moment, this uh, Last Supper thing. Um, all right. So here he is. He does this amazing thing. But then look at uh, question six. What's the sad surprise that Jesus had for them while he's at table with them? Yeah, one of you guys is going to betray me. And what was their response? Yeah. And here's the part that I, that I think we miss sometimes. It says, one by one, they said, surely not I. I've kind of got a, what does one by one mean? I, I got a feeling that Jesus says, one of you will betray me and looks at Matthew. And Matthew says, surely not I. One of you will betray me and looks at Thomas. And he says, surely not I. One of you will betray me. And he goes down the line one by one because who really betrayed Jesus? It's not just Judas, right? What happens? Peter, not short from there, denies him three times. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when they come to arrest him, the disciples run for their lives and hide in fear. See, one by one, he says, who is the one? The one who is who, who's eating with me, who's dipped bread with me. Do you know how many, how, how many other disciples probably dipped bread with Jesus? 
Yeah, I think it's all of them. You know how it is when you're at a party. You grab a cracker, you grab some dip, you know, you talk to your friends, you share, you know, you're moving around. You know, I don't think it was just Judas who dipped the bread, right? One by one, they said, surely not I. But then he calls out Judas for what he knows he is going to do for his specific betrayal, right? That comes, that comes later. Um, because uh, it's late, I'm going to question seven. What did Jesus say to the disciples as he gave them the bread and the cup of the wine? Right, right. He said, do this in remembrance of me. But don't miss the, the words that show up four times in the Bible. In Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, and in 1 Corinthians, the same words are repeated. The exact same words. Take and eat. This will kind of remind you of my body. Is that what it said? No. This is my body. Take and drink. This is my blood. Why is that important for us Lutherans who believe the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God? Because we believe what we say is the real presence, right? That when we have bread and wine, God miraculously adds the very body of the Passover lamb to that little piece of bread. So that when you take communion, you are receiving the body of Jesus Christ. Let that sink in. And when you drink the cup, that God adds the blood of Christ, the blood of the lamb that was put on the doorposts. The blood of the lamb is placed on you so that the angel will pass over you. Your sins will be forgiven. You will be forgiven. Uh, spend eternity in heaven. See, Holy Communion, these words are so important. It's not just a meal of remembrance. It's not just a meal that reminds us of a great gift that's been given to us. It is a meal that is the gift. Do you see the difference? It's not just a story about the gift. It is the gift. You receive it. The body and blood of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. It's like we're reliving that Passover with Jesus that night. Every time we take communion, we're around the table with the disciples. And he's giving us the body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins. One of the things I always think about when I take communion is it's something that I know I just want to do it slowly. Because I want to think of this. But you know, we're all living through and everything. And I want to just take a piece of bread and just think about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not a fan of fast food communion either. But you know, you should come to Monday once in a while. Monday nights we go up to the altar and we kneel and you have time to ponder and think about what it is. Yeah, every Monday night we offer communion at the altar. So if you ever just have a need for that, come on a Monday sometime. All right, I'm sorry we're past time, but uh, I think you got the point here. The powerful moment this was with the anointing that led to the Passover, uh, the giving of the Lord's Supper. All good, everybody? Yes, sir. There's plenty of room for sinners. Thank God for that. Chief of sinner though I be, right? Yes. Oh, who's actually going? Ken, you're going on the honor flight tomorrow? Awesome. Be safe, be well, tell us good stories. Thanks all. Dennis is here if you need to talk to him. Dennis, yes.